windy and airplanes. So this next upcoming Sunday will mark the, the fourth four years that I have been pastor here at, at WPC. In some ways, it feels like an incredibly long time. Quite a bit has happened in our church. Quite a bit has happened in the world. Quite a bit has happened in our community. And in other ways, it feels like we're really just getting started. Every year has been an adventure. Full of opportunities to to grow as we figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus and to share God's love with our neighbors. And I'm looking forward to what is on the horizon for this, this coming year, what's coming for my fifth year here. Now, during my, my first Sunday here, when I preached my candidating sermon, so actually before I actually started serving as pastor here, I, I took a picture of my kids in front of the oak tree that stood here. And, and I sent it to my friend Brad. Brad knew there was a chance I was going to end up as, as the pastor here, and he responded with something like, Yes! I love that church. Our family photo albums are full of pictures of that tree. His comment speaks to the far-reaching impact of this space, and, and more importantly, the far-reaching impact of this church. Brad and I grew up going to Sunday school together, uh, and his grandparents lived in Thousand Oaks, so he came here for holidays, which is why he had holiday pictures around the oak tree. We were in a covenant group together through high school. Now he's an elder in his church, and, and I am a pastor here. We've celebrated together. We've, we've cried together. We've, we've laughed together. We, we've, we've shared life together. He's one of the people I think of when I think about those friends that have helped me follow Jesus through all that life has thrown my way. And I imagine he'll be there in the seasons to come as well. I'm actually going to see him this Friday and meet his, his newborn for the first time. The passage that we are looking at this morning, the second passage is from the second chapter of Mark's gospel, and it has at least a few takeaways, at least a few takeaways that have to do with faithfulness, that have to do with, with forgiveness. But I think they're all wrapped up in a group of friends, a group of people working together to point someone they love toward Jesus, a group of people working together to introduce someone to Jesus. Jesus had just called the first disciples, and then he went out on a, on a bit of a mission trip where he, he healed people and he was, he was preaching. And then we read this, Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, Capernaum was a small fishing village along the Sea of Galilee where Jesus moved after living in Nazareth. The people heard that he had come home. So he goes out on this trip. He, he comes home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in the full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, when most people reflect or or share this story or preach on this passage, they they really focus on on the the second half of the the story, on everything that happens after the paralyzed man is is lowered down and and what happens between Jesus and the paralyzed man and the scribes who are listening in and in the crowds. And, And it's important. There's good reason that they focus there. Mark doesn't waste his words. He was not a man of many words. He, he wrote very concisely. So his first chapter gets right to Jesus' ministry, including all kinds of healings. But this is the first time where he says those words, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's also the first time we, we really see a confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities. This is also the first time he uses the name Son of Man. There is a lot of importance that happens right at the the end of this this passage. That's why people focus on it. The second half of this encounter is important, but I I want us to focus on on the first part just for a few moments today. I want to invite you to step into one of three roles, or all three roles in this story. Imagine what it would have been like to stand in the crowd inside or outside around the house. Imagine what it would have been like to, to be the paralytic lying on the mat. And imagine what it would have been like to be one of the four friends carrying the paralytic. A few years ago, I visited Capernaum and, and was surprised by how well the ruins were kept up. You can actually walk through the remains of a 4th century synagogue, and, and there's this row of 1st century houses that Franciscan monks unearthed and, and kind of excavated starting in the mid-1800s that are, are surprisingly really, really well kept. It doesn't take much of an imagination to, to picture this small town bustling with activity. Fishermen delivering their catch in the morning. Neighbors wandering through the market, walking to synagogues, stepping outside of their homes to talk about current events. Capernaum, it wasn't a, a big town at all. Most think that at this time there was maybe 1,200 or 1,500 people who, who lived there. And it makes sense that Jesus would have seen this as his home base. It was kind of off the beaten path, uh, away from the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem or Nazareth, but not too far away. The town was small enough that that any time anything happened in town, or, or any time anyone important showed up in town, everyone would have known. So I have to imagine this wasn't the first time Jesus returned to a crowd eager to hear of his latest adventure. He gathered as many as he could into a house, probably where Peter's family lived, some think even where, where Jesus himself stayed, and he shared the good news. Now, I used to picture this story and think of a a, a pretty large crowd, 
Think of a, a, a big space. But in all reality, this was a, a small house, really as small as one of our preschool classrooms. And our preschool classrooms feel crowded when there's 14 or 15 four-year-olds in it. So, so it wasn't that large of a space. And there's no way to know exactly how many people were, were there, but we know that it was crowded enough that people gathered around the house, likely in, in, in a courtyard, trying to push in and to hear, to, to get closer. So the first role that I asked you to imagine putting yourself in is the role of a person in that crowd. Would you be excited? Would you be curious? Would you be hopeful? Would you be distracted? Would you be annoyed because you couldn't hear? Uh, Annoyed because you couldn't get close enough? Maybe disappointed because you thought that there would be more and there wasn't. One of the reasons the crowd is so relatable because to a degree, we've all felt the way that some of those people felt that day. Maybe here at church, maybe elsewhere. But the crowd reminds us to be honest as we approach Jesus. Honest with ourselves, with one another as we come to worship. Honest with our questions as we dive into scripture. Honest with life as it gets hard. And when we say those prayers that aren't answered in the way that we would have hoped. Then there's the paralytic. We don't know the degree of his paralysis. We don't know what caused it or how long he had been paralyzed. We don't know if he was asked, if he asked to be taken to Jesus, or, or if he went kicking, he wouldn't have gone kicking and screaming, if he went yelling, saying, saying I, I don't want to go, what are we doing, what are you doing? We don't know what the interaction was like. The only way most of us are able to to kind of put ourselves in the place of the paralytic is to think of a time when we ourselves needed help. Maybe a time you were ill or hurt and someone came to your side. A time you needed to talk and somebody lent you an ear. A time that you needed a resource and someone gave it to you with no questions asked. Now, I'm not going to ask us to go into a time of confession and raise hands, but some of us struggle with receiving help. I should say I struggle with receiving help. I was reminded of that struggle a few weeks ago. My, my wife Haley, she went out of town. I shared some of this with, with some of you for five days, and I was convinced that I could do it all on my own. I had this. No, no problem. I, I, I got this. School drop-off and pick-up, packing lunches, soccer, baseball, choir, a band, piano practices, homework, no problem. I could do it all, and I'd write my sermon while I was driving from one place to the next. I had it covered. We're good. Just go, is what I told her. Well, she knows me better than I do sometimes. And she wrote like a five-page reminder of what was what and when was there. She organized play dates. She organized babysitters like Douglas to come over and hang out with my kids. She, she knew I was going to need help. And I fought it at first. I fought it at first. But after two days, I found myself incredibly thankful to have a community around us that would help in times that we needed it. The crowd reminds us to be honest, 
the, the paralyzed man who reminds us it's okay to accept help. But what about the four friends? What about the four friends? I think they give us one of the earliest examples, concrete examples, of what it looks like to be the church, of what it looks like to be a group of people trying to help others toward Jesus. We, we talk a lot here at WPC about our, our life together, about inviting all people to follow Jesus on a journey of faith, friendship, and service, recognizing that we are all in different places on that journey. It's a great vision. It's a, it's, a, it's a great vision, one that's appropriate and, and one that I'm, I'm fully standing behind and support. Shoot, I was a part of the team that created it. I better be. I, I, I think it's a great vision. But sometimes, sometimes I'm not totally sure it goes far enough. And, and here's what I mean by that. It wouldn't have done the paralytic a whole lot of good if his friends just stood there and said, hey, come with me. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have done him any good if they just invited him. They, they needed to do more. He wouldn't have been able to move on his own. So what do his friends do? They get to work, removing all of the obstacles that are in the way of their friend getting to Jesus. They carry him around the crowded house. They take him up the ladder to the roof. They, they dig through the roof. The roof in those, those days were compiled of, of, of hay and mud and every other sort of substance that you can think of. And they dig through. Imagine sitting there hearing Jesus talk while shrapnel's falling on you. They, they dig through it all just to get their friend to Jesus. And Mark writes that it's because of their faith that the man's sins are forgiven. Their faith. Their faith. The friend's faith. But faith in what? Faith that Jesus could make him walk again? Faith that, that Jesus might see their effort and forgive his sin? Faith that their love for their friend actually made a difference? We're not sure in the way that Mark writes is, is just cryptic enough to leave scholars asking questions for generations and generations by what exactly Jesus meant when he said, because of their faith, your sins are forgiven. But we do know the four friends remove all the obstacles that are in the way. What does that look like for us? How are we doing with, with helping our friends get closer to Jesus? What are the obstacles that they face? Are we even aware of them? What might we need to climb up or, or dig through for the sake of our friends, for the sake of our neighbors? The, these four friends, they give us this, this beautiful model for what it really looks like to journey together. The journey together to get people closer to Jesus. And my hope is, as we move into our, our next chapter as a church, that we'd step out in faith in a similar way. That we would say, what do we need to do to help those we know get closer to Jesus? Over the last three or four months, our elders, our, our session, have had some 
really important conversations around what's next for our church. And there's a lot of reasons we're having those conversations. The world's opening back up where we're trying to figure out what it looks like. We had the courtyard that we were working on. We're figuring out what church looks like as we move forward. And along the way, as we've had those conversations, we've, we've talked about exactly what we're going to do as a church. We've asked questions. What are we going to do? What's next for us? And along the way, we've talked a lot about our, our resources, our property, this courtyard, the kitchen, our preschool. How, does our, how do our resources serve as a way to point people towards Jesus? It's a pretty simple question, not with easy answers, but it's a simple question. How does what we have collectively as a church get people closer to Jesus? Our finances. The reality is, as a church, we've got a decent amount of reserves because of generous estate giving over the years. We've, we've had to lean on them to cover shortfalls in the past, but they've still grown. Our elders, the, the leaders of our church, are, are ready to take some calculated risk with some of those financial resources. To invest in places like student ministry and like, like mission and, and worship and arts. To take some calculated risk. But we know that eventually those funds will run out if we only lean on them. Our collective talent. This church is full of skilled and gifted people. This courtyard is a, a great example of that. But sometimes we don't do the best job of inviting everyone to use their gifts. And because of that, we limit creativity and we, we often stifle community. So over the next four to six weeks, I'm going to be working with our elders to, to host a series of, of conversations to talk about what it looks like to move forward. What is next? And you don't have to remember the dates today because you're all thinking about turkey dinner on Thursday. You don't have to remember the dates today, but they're, they're December 15th and 19th and January 9th. We'll email them out. Don't worry. They're, they're, they're coming. We're going to have some conversations about what's next talk about how how we're going to aim to get there and then we want you to give us some feedback we're inviting that feedback the point of these conversations is to explain some of the strategic risks that our, our elders are ready to take but mostly it's an opportunity to listen we, we've been through a lot as a community we want to be a church that helps people to get closer to jesus which is why we are having those conversations and why we're receiving those dedication and, and gratitude cards today. These cards are in, in no way a, a contract of, of any sort. Um, hopefully you got some in the mail, and if you didn't get them in the mail, they were going to be out on your, your chairs. However, then they would just blow all over the place, so they didn't get them. But, but there's, nothing, there's nothing magic about these cards Really what these cards help us do is to budget, to plan. It's not a contract. It's not a contract. It's a, hey, help us plan. Help us plan. Help us build our ministry teams. Help us build our, our ministry teams and help us budget. These cards are about helping us plan where we are going next. 
The only people that see them are our stewardship elders and our, our director of operations, who, uh, who Greg mentioned earlier, Terry, uh, in the office. We see as a church that giving is an act of worship, so our stewardship team and our, our, our worship team thought it was important to include receiving those cards during our worship service. But if you're not ready to do so today, don't, don't feel any pressure, especially if you're seeing it for the first time today and you're like, Dave, what in the world are you talking about? Take it home, pray about it, think about it. What I do want to emphasize is come and talk with us. Come and talk with me if you have questions about where we're going, some of those thoughts. Um, let's, let's go grab coffee. That's, I was going to say sit under one. There's one umbrella. Sit under the umbrella in our courtyard and, and have, have, have a chat um, and talk about where we are going as a church. So there are, there are blank envelopes available if you would like to put a card in a blank envelope and, and put them um, in the cornucopia uh, up front or the basket up front. If you came today prepared to give an offering, you can place the offering there as well. Um, and if you want to take it home and think about it and pray about it, you are welcome to do that as well. Let's receive this morning's tithes and offerings as well as our dedications for where we are going moving forward.